Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Andrew Barry. He's the founder and CEO of Curious Lion. We're going to be discussing story. We're going to be discussing different types of thinking, ways of thinking, adapting. And in particular, we're going to focus on the middle management layer. We're both genuinely concerned and we genuinely feel for middle managers. They are in the most precarious position of anyone in any business. And the sales managers are in the most precarious position of all the most precarious. And they also represent the greatest catalytic potential for improving performance and getting us out of recession, turning companies around and making profit. So we're going to look at some very uncomfortable unasked questions. We're going to look at blind spots and we're going to dig very deep. As usual, the conversation will bounce back and forth. If you have questions, if you've got comments, please get in touch. And in the meantime, quick plug, if you're struggling at the moment because your business has stagnated for whatever reason, your pipeline is stuck, customers are ghosting you, the old skills, the old techniques, the old strategies aren't working, give me a call. I know how to unlock all of that. And it's not really that difficult. It's uncomfortable. And you're going to have to do things that will require you to do things that are alien to you. But the results are stellar. I've got clients who are crushing their quotas three, four, five hundred percent. And I know it sounds outlandishly ludicrous in this market, but it's not that difficult if you play it smart. So back to the episode. Andrew, welcome. Marcus, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. My pleasure. Look, let's start with a couple of minutes on your history. Tell us a little bit about you, your background, how you got here. Yeah, so I originated in, in South Africa. I grew up in Cape Town. I left Cape Town, immigrated to the United States about 13 years ago. So my background is in, I'm actually a chartered accountant, qualified chartered accountant, CPA here. But I was always obsessed and passionate about education and specifically training, learning, development. I did that from my first entrepreneurial job was teaching maths as a straight out of high school. And from, from there, KPMG teaching internal training and then selling executive education. And I eventually plucked up the courage about six or seven years ago while I was here in the States to start my own business because of a lot of the things that I see you see is that it's just not done well. It's not done well in, in big companies. And I, I I think I have a better way to, to fix it. Okay. So let, let's start with a couple of definitions. What is leadership and what is the role of a leader? I think it's important to define leadership in contrast to management. I think those are, are two different I, I was, things. I was going to come to that, but if you want to do the two I, together, feel free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I figured you, you you go there, and yeah, I just I think that for me, that's kind of the framing that I'm that I am I'm looking at this through is in the contrast of those two. So there is. Let me first of all say nothing wrong with being a manager, but being a manager is is meeting a certain level that is not quite leadership. I think what sets me what sets leadership apart for me is the ability to be an original thinker to be to take full responsibility for your own actions and the actions of those around you to inspire to motivate to to be vulnerable I mean all of these kind of things are what define leaders and are in the world that I play 
absolutely central. It's the catalyst for creating learning culture. Okay, I'm going to take slight issue. It's not that I disagree vehemently, but one red flag that I have to raise is the idea that you can motivate anyone. If we're going to be precise about language, motivation uh, is an internal force. You can inspire, bully, cajole, bribe, brutalize, uh, deceive, uh, manipulate, coerce, but you can't motivate. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the, the, the first point. Um, but, I would agree. I agree um, with that. Excellent. Yeah. So um, the, the next thing is that I believe that a manager's job is to hire the best people into their team and create the conditions for those people to do amazing, excellent work every day, their best work every day. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean one size fits all, and they require leadership to give them the support and the resources that they need because managers are the people who have to execute the leader's vision. So whether it's a departmental leader, they ha- should have a vision, theoretically, And if it's not them, then it's the board or um, whoever is founding the company. I think there is a a deep misunderstanding of both positions because managers have a tendency to become supervisors. Mm -hmm. And their management style is one of command and control Mm -hmm. instead of one of nurturing, of operational coaching, of coaching in the moment on the basis of what I see there and then, I hear you say something in a conversation with a buyer, and I say, Andrew, notice something happened in that call. Do you mind if we have a quick chat? Yeah. yeah. This moment happened, tell me more. And it's a two-minute conversation by the water cooler or whatever, and then there's an agreed next step, and they go off and do it. Now, Mm -hmm. where we have managers who have that type of approach we see them recover at least 20%, i.e. one full working day every single week. Uh Where you do this at scale en masse, you get a culture change that occurs at the same time because all of a sudden the language changes, the excuses go away, people start to cooperate. And I think that leadership and management are two parts of the same coin. Yeah, I agree. But they have different roles, but they're part of the same function. Yeah. I, I just want to pick up like the roles point, I think, is key here, right? Because I think there is assigned roles and responsibilities, which manager as a title is kind of the, the perfect thing. Is that no one's like, and I, I really believe this, you, you, you don't get given the title leader, right? You have to earn that title. And so it follows that, yes, leadership are the people that set the vision and allocate the budget. And, and that's where probably the, the highest density of this quality exists. But a leader, a leader can also be an individual contributor on a team, right? And, and step. So we're talking more like qualitative, I think, as the, as the difference here. Excellent. Okay, well, I'll definitely run with that because that I absolutely agree with because I think yeah. a salesperson should be a leader. People yeah. come to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands. You know, they're, they're exactly. entering into an arena where they're going to make what most of my clients and most of my audience do, uh, sell, which is something that is costly, yes, strategic. The implications of getting it wrong are significant and potentially embarrassing or career-stopping or bankrupting. So we have a massive responsibility as sellers to behave with integrity at all times. 
Yeah. Yeah. We have no right to take someone's money in order to serve our short-term objective when it's going yeah. to do them harm. Yeah. And I think, that, well, just the, the one final point on this is the total lack of business ethics. Yeah. They seem to have gone out the window. So make your point, and then let's get on to the whole subject as, you know, yeah. behaving well. Yeah, exactly. I love that you call out integrity. I'm going to come back to that because it's it's one of four qualities that I think define leadership like we're talking about it. But I also want to say, I, I think another key point around this is that leadership shows up at crucible moments, right? And yeah. what I'm realizing right now in my business is that I'm in a crucible moment right now. Business is not as usual. Sales cycles are way longer. The risk aversion, the risk assessment levels that uh, all my deals are having to go through is so much higher. So just things are a lot harder, right? Business is a lot harder right now. And I think everyone's feeling that. And with that comes uncertainty. And with that, so that is a crucible moment. It's like, how do I respond and show up as a leader of my company in that environment? And I think what you are calling out is so important is that an individual seller has that same responsibility in the crucible moments of the sales conversation. And they might have multiple of those a day. And again, this is really important and it speaks to responsibility. Being pressured by your management to pressure your customer or to lie to your customer or not mention something that may be material to their decision or their enjoyment of the outcome that they intended when they made the investment with you, mm -hmm. that is a choice. Whether you were pressured or coerced or bribed or enticed you made that choice. And the question I want to ask everyone is, is that a reward high enough to sacrifice your integrity, uh -huh. your reputation? Because with that person, when you get found out, they may forgive you, unlikely, but they may, but yeah. they're never going to forget. And there is something called the 3555 rule, which uh -huh. is do a good job. They'll tell three people. Do a bad job, they'll tell five, who'll tell 55 each. Yeah, that's so <laughs> true. I was going to say, um, it comes, the integrity things are called out. I, I think this is maybe going to get us into the conversation because I look at this from the perspective that the reason a seller falls into that trap that you just described is often because that's only the only way they've been taught. Right. Like they often like fall into this thing of like, well, I'm checking the box here. Like I'm going through my med pick and I'm having to. So I'm I'm pushing this conversation in a way that my buyer is not comfortable with. Like it just it creates all kind of confusion. And that's the problem with people relying on kind of logic and systems and processes to go up a level. Right. Because these things are all important as a baseline, but they're not going to take you to the, to the ceiling. This then takes us to the reality of the human relationship between manager and salesperson or yeah. ma manager and anyone, whether they're a leader uh, with direct reports or whatever. We need to create a safe environment so our people can fail, so that they can be open and they don't have to lie. They don't have to be guarded. They don't have to be brittle. And in mm -hmm. fact, one of my favorite examples of this is Ray Dalio having created a failure log, the reason you'll get fired is for hiding your failure, not for failing. As long as you fess up to it, then we've got a chance to improve it. Yeah, and That's the problem. I don't think we're running to the sound of gunfire because we're terrified of failing. And our yeah. managers need to be the ones who have to create the conditions where people feel safe because managers create the culture of the team. 
Yeah, 100%. And Ray Dalio also said that what is what you don't know, this is paraphrasing, and so other people have said this as well, but what you don't know is more important than what you do. And, yeah. and you can never fathom the full extent of that, you know, what you don't know piece, right? And I think that's part of it. Like, the, the, it is inextricably linked to the failure part, because like, the only way to go into that is to bump into it and figure out where the holes are. I, I think Mark Twain's play on that is even better, which is it ain't what you know, don't know that hurts you. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. 100%. 100%. So let's look at some of those wonderful blind spots that occur between managers and leaders. Yeah, I think I think for me, one of the, the so well, first and foremost, there is a chronic underinvestment in manager training that oh. happens. We pulled some stats is between so so companies spend between one and eight percent of their hiring budgets for, for managers on training them. Okay, so it's shockingly low. This is despite the fact that managers that don't receive training in their first two years show a 260% higher turnover on their teams. Okay, so I have confirmed this anecdotally with all the sales and MM people I speak to. Like they all tell me, like, oh, we've we've just we like they I feel like collectively are realizing that they've spent too much time focusing on ICs and not enough on managers. And it's to your point earlier, and I, I don't know if we had had started recording yet when you talked about this, but managers are the they are the fulcrum of an organization, yeah. of your, your front line, right? The central point in which information flows. So it, up and down, right? Like so they're they're the link between leadership they're close to the customer like everything flows through these people they are responsible for executing the what of the board yeah that's their responsibility they have to execute the board's vision exactly and at the same time they know what's going on in the markets right they're the closest to the buyers through the you know the reps that they manage and so they're also getting that real-time feedback so they have this responsibility to get that feedback back up as well Again, in an ideal world, they're close to the customer and they're getting their feedback. But more often than not, you promote a manager who was um, you know, an okay individual contributor. The yeah. skill set is 180 degrees the other way. And yeah. what you end up with is a bunch of people who lie to the manager, sandbag. They cover their backs because they're terrified of getting shouted at or fired. The manager has a tendency to play hero and then they burn out because they can constantly run ragged and they suffer and from they, the delegation. Exactly. And then, they, and then they fall victim to the blame game. And that's yeah. when all learning stops. Absolutely. And yeah. it, well, again, uh, it gets worse because this is something that we propagate from senior leadership because of how we measure people. The metrics are madness mm-hmm. yeah. because most of them are lagging. They had no value to help the people on the ground do their job and adjust. So the net result is they spend a fortune on admin. On they overemphasize finance, technology, and data. Yeah. At the expense of relationship, strategy, management. Yeah. Action. Can I can I give you three quick forces there because that are playing into this. I love that you said that. And, and the, we, we put out an email course on this exact topic. So the first three emails cover these three points. And these are powerful forces that are, that are contributing to what you're talking about. The first is present bias. So we are, we are an instant gratification society, right? So we are, it's the marshmallow test, right? Like how, how many kids yeah. can actually not eat that first marshmallow? Not many, right? So we have a short-term present bias 
we because of what you just said there's you know the famous business adage what gets measured gets managed right so then we think well actually there's a lot of things that could get measured so let's ma manage them all right and that just leads to burnout it leads to things that are not effective um it also means you're missing things that do matter that can't be measured right and we'll, we'll talk about that as well i think more and so you get this illusion of control right like they think that mm -hmm. all these things that i can i can measure get managed right that's number two and then number three and this is something that ai is teaching us now as a as a danger it's called overfitting and overfitting is where the, the map is not the territory right and so the metrics are just proxies for the actual thing right sales right and at the beginning, the proxy and the goal are very close, and the model can and you know the so in when I say the model like in a in a human thing, it's follow the playbook, you know, do use the strategies, whatever. We'll get close. You'll 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 show progress. You'll see short term results, and that's the danger because what AI is showing us is that eventually the proxy, because the proxy and the goal can never be the same, those things actually diverge. And by optimizing the thing we're optimizing for as a proxy, you actually get further away from the goal. And I think we see that in sales. Okay, so again, what, what I'm seeing, I see these patterns constantly because of decisions at the top and the ripple effect through the organization where they don't think about the negative unintended consequences. So the rule that we need to take away from today uh, on this one is when you come across a great idea, keep looking. Because the first great idea is a trap more often than not. It may be the, the right one, but you've got to keep looking. You've got to keep, you've got to run to the sound of gunfire because yeah. you're only going to grow by finding out what's not working, where the gaps are. And again, I think there's this paranoia, this fear, and middle managers in particular have a lot of it because they are pressured from above. They're at risk from below because they can get sued. Their peers are putting them under pressure, and the customers are also looking at them. So they're really in the thick of it. Who'd want to then be a manager? Then you don't train them. Well, th then you don't train them, and then <laughs> exactly. you blame them for failing. Because exactly. at the top, there's a lack of clarity, and lack of clarity at the top filters down through the organization as politics and ambiguity, and then you fire them for not achieving the ambiguous outcome that you never expressed to them never gave them a chance yeah, yeah. I, I i've seen that so many times are you seeing a lot of people um reverting back to ic roles away from management because i am yeah i i've seen that i've seen like the player coach thing being a huge part of it those hybrid roles i think that's the that's the the that is setting someone up for failure right away because like uh, if you're going to be a manager a people manager that's a dedicated role that requires a whole different skill set and there's a lot more to get better at in that thing so I, to me you have to separate the two and why do you have to separate the two just so people don't hear it just from me because it's a completely different skill set and you can't, you're going to do, it's like trying to do, it's trying to, it's a dog with two owners. You know, I think that's the analogy, right? Like you're going to do a, a shitty job at two things instead of like one good job at one thing. You, you become a spork. A, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And sporks are not selling very well as far as I know. Okay. So let's have a look at some of these wonderful blind spots and biases. So when we, Think about the speed, haste. Mm -hmm. Let, let's mm -hmm. talk about that and the culture of haste and the impact that that has on the organization and how managers then reflect that 
through their organization. So let me ask you this. Where do you get your best ideas? When I'm relaxed, when I'm not thinking about the thing quite often, or when I'm working with other people and we're all focused on the same problem. That's the best. A lot of people say, like, the first two things you said are fall under that category of middle of the night, driving in my car, out walking, right? You mentioned the last one is kind of at, at work, but very few people say they get their best ideas at work. You've described an ideal work environment, and I'm assuming it's not like most people's. It's certainly not like the hasty, panic-stricken, blaming everyone kind of environment that most people are in, right? Where you're putting out fires every single day. And it's it works exactly the same as an argument, right? How many, if you if you think back to the last argument you've had, how often does it come that you, you know, five, 10, 20, a few hours after that argument, you sit down, you reflect on it, and then you think of the exact thing you should have said in the in the moment, right? Cool. And the speed d'escalier, the spirit of the stairs. You just had a row, you're going up, stomping up to bed, and you think, I've had enough. Oh, shit, that's what I should have said. Exactly. Oh, I love that. That's a great, great name for it. Yeah, and, and that's the, so it's the same at, at work. You, we're, we caught up in that environment. I've, I used to work at KPMG and, and experienced a lot of this, and I thought that was the norm. I thought, and a lot of people think that's the norm. That's just how work is. But you're describing like the, your best ideas come when you slow down, when you're working on something you, you're passionate about, when you're working with people that feel that same energy and they're moving in the same direction, that's a very rare feeling at work. Yeah. And again, it's really, really not that hard to create if you bother to think. But the problem that I see is no one really spends enough time in thought, reflection, pausing, hesitating, you know, taking one question and really going to town on it you know an hour working on the one question with no interruptions totally agree i mean that's something that i had to carve out for myself as as an entrepreneur very intentionally i'm sure you do the same thing and i'm always shocked honestly how few of my friends have that luxury you know the ones that still have jobs well again most of them create the conditions where they are too busy that this is the thing. I mean, I really feel for managers because they're feeling all this pressure from above. But then I look at what they do to uh, get in their own way. Well, if you're a micromanager, you create the conditions where you end up becoming a bottleneck and then you end up having work passed to you. And then people start to give up because they think, well, there's no point. Andrew's just going to change it. Why do I bother? Yeah. Um, so again, managers need to learn that that, uh, in fact, um, I think it was uh, Mike Mikowitz came up with this uh, model. So he's got the four Ds, but I've added a fifth one. Basically, you've got a box in the middle and four quadrants. And they are do, decide, delegate, design, and develop. That's it. Mm-hmm. And where do you spend most of your time? Because if you're spending most of your time as a manager in the do or decide section. Yeah. You're in trouble. Yeah. And you need to be spending 80% of your time in the develop and the design section mm-hmm. and delegate as much as humanly possible down to the people who are closest to the problem and yeah. give them rules on what they can and can't do so that they know that they're safe making a decision within these boundaries and they don't make the decision and they delegate it up if it's outside of those boundaries and they're clear yeah. and simple. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of things I can say to that. I mean, one trust comes to mind is a big, a big thing that we work on with with teams is how to how to foster that sense of trust. So I, I think it might be worth saying this is I think a helpful framing is that we believe the the learning units within a company is a team. So anybody listening to this, like think of your team as a learning unit. And that unit, that that little mini organization can learn as it's it's a, it's its own organism, right? It can learn and generate knowledge way more powerfully and way more expansively than any one individual within that. So all the people in your team are nodes, you know, within that network. And then there's, you know, communication that goes between them. And you can strengthen both those things. You can improve the node. You can make the, uh, and I believe that's the, the the thing we should be prioritizing is adaptive intelligence. So the node's ability to, you know, generate new knowledge, process knowledge, and then package and share knowledge in a way that, you know, is translating implicit to explicit back and forth. And then you can improve the communication parts between nodes. And, and that's what you're talking about with trust and collaboration and connection. And, and that's a whole nother set of skills for people to learn. And how does leadership need to set up the conditions so that managers feel safe operating like that? And who do they have to recruit in order to adapt to the new economy, the new context? I actually don't think it's a recruiting problem. I think that's the short-term solution that leads to long-term problems. If you're trying to hire, assuming what you mean is like trying to hire that person who's going to be able to do that, because that's a rare bird, right? That's an AA player. But I, I do believe that leadership, as we are talking about it, can be, uh, it, you're not born with it. You can, you can make a leader, you can develop a leader uh, or leadership qualities. And so I, I would say that for your question, which is how can leadership provide that kind of environment for managers, they've got to demonstrate that themselves. So that management group is your learning units, right? And like, how do you, how do you make mistakes okay? How do you show growth paths for people? How do you lean into the fact that this team is a organism in itself that can learn and adapt and generate new knowledge. And, you know, and, and so it starts with the leadership. And what about the ethics? Yeah, well, this comes back to integrity. I, I love that you called that out at the beginning. And for me, I mentioned there were four, four qualities that we focused on. So integrity is one of them. What you say is what you do. Um, the, the second is emotional intelligence. Um, and that's that ability. It's sort of emotional agility. Susan David, she's another South African, actually, um, is an incredible book on that. Third is storytelling, which is, as we know, I'm sure you've done tons of podcast interviews on that topic. And then, and it's part of what we do as well. But the fourth one is where we really focus, and that's adaptive intelligence. So the ability to, to learn and react to the environment. And I'm going to go back to your question, though, about ethics and integrity. Why is that one so important? It, it is it's kind of the, it's the through line for all of this, right? If you don't, it comes back to trust as well. If you don't, if you're not the kind of person that's known to do what you say and say what you do, how can the team below you trust you, you know? And, and um, yeah, so, I mean, I think it, again, it comes down to modeling that the behavior that you want to see in the team around you. How are you recommending people prepare for what's to come? Do you want to, how tactical do you want to get? <laughs> Let's start high level. So let's go strategic. Yeah. I think you've got to. I think you've got to first kind of appreciate the 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 idea of your team as a learning unit. Okay, so you can improve the individual people within that team, and you can improve the team's ability to learn. So these are like the two levers that you can pull, uh, and within them, there's more, right? So I'll, I'll kind of talk about each one. So 
improving that node, I think there is enough, there's some really high quality training out there that I, I think most companies are not using. It's generally done by individuals that have left the field, the pub, public practice, and they're now like entrepreneurs themselves teaching these things. You, are, I think, are a good example of this. But they're people that focus on management skills and they teach the basics at a very high level. You, you need that, right? But I think what where, where we come into this from is that we also need to be thinking of how do we teach people to think for themselves, right? Because this is a the problem with just stopping at the at the first step is that people then seem to then think that the answers exist within some kind of textbook or playbook or on a Slack channel, right? And, and that's not well, the case. They're looking for magic dust. This is exactly. the, the whole problem with training, that people learn technique, management technique, sales technique, closing technique, opening technique, telephone technique. That's Technique is not why people buy, and it's not what makes people good salespeople. What they need to understand are the fundamentals of human communication, and they need to be good at using those building blocks and being able to bring them together exactly at the right time under pressure. And that's why training doesn't work. Yeah. L&D obsess about completion rates and retention rates. And you've got all these different stakeholders. But actually, what we really care about is can they use it in the field? And what mm -hmm. I've seen time and time again, people trained by you know reputable firms, is those salespeople, especially now that the market has got a lot tougher, that technique doesn't work anymore and they cannot adapt because what they learned was how to beat people over the head with a bludgeon. The technique mm. is not about that. The technique should be a shield. It's yeah. a way of helping both sides understand, are we a fit and should we move forward or do we part friends? Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's, I think people leave managers short with just, you know, when they, so they'll roll out like a big med pick methodology training or command of the message or whatever, name, name the, the methodology. And again, all that does is create a sort of semantic structure for things. It's, it's a, it's process orientated. It's, it's fact-based, it's data-based, right? It's all static. And it doesn't teach people the dynamic reality of what you're talking about. Relationship is, it's a relationship business. What what does that tell you about the leadership though and the way they think? If that's if they if they allow that, if they tolerate that? That's a good question. I think it gives well, first of all, it, it does lead to short-term results. And that uh, it does for people fall into a trap because of that. I think that's it. Like I, I think what we're realizing this year is that a lot of people are now realizing that those strategies don't work for the first time, right? You, and you could get away with this for the last decade, right? You just throw stuff at the wall and then deals with clothes and like everyone was doing fine, right? And now the music has stopped and everyone's like not really sure what the next song is going to be. I mean, the key question here then has to be, what do we need to do to stay relevant, to be relevant? Yeah. And more often than not, that conversation should have started months or even years before. But because of the fixation on short-term objectives, then no one ever has any time to build relationships. Yeah. And I've developed a, a triangular model. It's nothing terribly sophisticated. Revenue down one corner, uh, down one side. Relationships down another. And strategy on the bottom. And you ask CROs, leaders, managers, salespeople, where they're spending the bulk of their time. And it's always on revenue. Okay. So is that short or long-term revenue? Is it, uh, are you focused on revenue or profit? What we're looking for are the inputs and the outputs. More often than not, what they're getting is, 
unprofitable revenue, that is high churn risk. Well, why? Because yeah. they're underemphasizing the relationship and they have no strategy. And if they do, they're not communicating it or they're not living it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great framework. But that's exactly the problem. And and that's because that's only the only way they've been taught, right? Because yeah. so he, here's the thing. And I think this is the key. So I'm going to get a, like a little, I'm going to do, I'll try to keep it to a minute, just kind of a little bit of a, a history. It's all right. So, Go on as long as you need to, because God knows okay. I've taken way too much time. Okay. Okay. So all creativity training, as we know now, and I, I, I use creativity training because I think it, it, it is the, it is essentially what we're asking people to do, right? We're asking them to solve complex, open-ended problems right now. And, you know, I look at a sales conversation as that. I see that in my, in my, in my environment all the time. That is there, you can't, you cannot prepare for like the perfect plan for any sales conversation. All you can do is opt, you can't optimize the plan. You can optimize the planner, right? So like you can be better, get better at doing this thing, but ultimately it's still going to come down to a human, to human interaction. And so, you know, so all creativity training, including diversion thinking, conversion thinking. In fact, that was the original idea, but all like design thinking, all of that has originated from an idea that came out in the 1940s. It was an Air Force colonel called J.P. Guildford who had an insight, which is very important, and it's still a great insight, that the human brain works like a computer, right? Because that is true. There are parts of the brain that work like a computer. Input information comes in, gets processed, and it goes out. And that led to a very deep understanding of the logic centers of the brain, which is kind of like the left brain as we, as we know it. And so from that, they developed a whole bunch of methods on how to improve that side of the brain. What it doesn't take into account is the, the right brain or the deep brain or the kind of the default mode network, technically in neuroscience. And, and so it's this part of the brain that kind of operates on its own, right? It comes up with the crazy ideas. It, it, it thinks in actions rather than data. It, it thinks in story, right? And we haven't, we haven't known what to do with that in, in corporate you know, in, in, in corporate America, in, corporate, in any company. We don't know what to do with that side of the brain because it's messy. It's, it's difficult to like understand. It doesn't feel like progress. It seems like it's, it's all over the place. You know, like what, what's the, this is just imagination. But here's the, here's the key insight that the ability to think in story, which is the ability to literally chain actions together, right? Cause and effect. And that, that's plotting. Plotting, right? Plotting is another word for planning. Planning is another word for strategy. The insight behind this, and I, I am forever indebted to, to meeting someone a year ago called Angus Fletcher, who, who taught me this idea and has an amazing book on this. And that is that stories were actually are one of the greatest inventions humans have ever you know, come up with, the greatest technologies we've ever come up with, because they help us solve problems. And, and not, not in the sense of how to build a boat or how to start a fire, but existential problems, like how to have courage in the face of death and how to live and how to love, you know? And so stories have codified our human response to these challenges in a way that I can now read that story. I can make that, that explicit story implicit. And the person that's wrote the story made their implicit explicit, you know? So we're transferring a deep embodied understanding. Exactly, an embodied understanding of how to solve whatever problem it is. Now, apply that to a sales conversation, right? Complex, open-ended, you cannot prepare perfectly for it ever. You need to know how to handle that. And, and the only way to transfer that knowledge is through story. Again, I think 
something about this also speaks to slowing down. One of the things I teach my clients to do is to recruit new customers. If they were going onto your payroll or onto your balance sheet for the next three, five, 10, 20 years, how would you be approached to sale differently? What would your intent be? Mm. Are you going to be working hand in glove with this person eight hours a day for the next seven years? You're going to go to their weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, christenings, and everything else. So let's just make sure it's the right one. What are you uh, going to do differently? Yeah, I love that because it's it's such an important part of this because, like I said, storytelling and, and thinking of stories is messy, and so it does take time. And so your call to say, slow down. but And what your, is implicit in your call is think long-term. If you yeah. invest in that person now, you have years and years of mutually beneficial business relationships to look forward to instead of trying to play the scattergun approach and try to get as many as you can in the door right now. How cheaply will people sell their reputation and their word mm. for one transaction, for, to get one meeting, to move a deal forward? Yeah. I mean, that's the price people are willing to pay because of the coercion and the pressure that they're feeling, because they're not thinking straight and they don't feel yeah. safe. And those managers have seven or eight people reporting to them on average. Yeah, You know that there are um, 2.4 or 2.3 million accidental managers in the United Kingdom. I love that word. Yeah. Now, that means these are people who woke up one morning, came to work, were scoffing their Weetabix or cornflakes they got yeah. a tap on the shoulder and said andrew bad news and you think oh god it's me we've just fired your idiot boss good news you're now the idiot boss off you yeah. go son and then yeah. that's the runway and then they wonder why you fail i mean it, yeah. i feel for managers but yeah more often than not they're afraid to ask for help they're afraid to get help they're afraid to push back on leadership and say okay so you say that you want us to do these things. What is it you want us to sacrifice? Yeah. I I feel a lot of empathy for them too. And I I I think I think I look at what you just said through this lens. I think so we we do exactly that. You're so right. And accidental manager is such a great frame for this. So we, we then throw these people in and we give them training that we think helps, right? But all that training does is give them answers that have worked in the past. Okay. That is literally, that's how, that's the only way you can create that type of training. Um, well, that's what we do. It worked in the past for some people in some contexts. Exactly. And all that nuance is missing for sure. Yeah. Now, this is what we do with computers as well, right? We give them data as AI models are based on past data. So an AI, I think everyone will agree, can never be, it can never create, right? It can never create anything new. It can never create anything that's never been considered before, right? That's not what it's capable of doing. It can synthesize huge amounts of information and, and make guesses at things, but it, it can never create. That's what separates the human brain from a, a computer intelligence. A human brain can create, okay? The, the problem, and I, this is where I, I feel that empathy the strongest, so first of all, we are born able to create. Like, you know, my, like my son thinks in story all the time, and I can tell you yeah. dozens of stories about that, right? And he he can totally change his whole perspective on on his reality around him in an instant by telling himself a new story, right? And I, I've got tons of the examples of that. But but the point is, um, we're born how to do this, and then we get told, we get kind of beaten out of us, actually, like through school and then through 
first job and all these kind of things. And we we forget. And what we're saying, what you're saying and the empathy part comes in because we're thrusting these managers into these roles. And we, without realizing it, we're saying like, you need to create, you need to invent, you need to innovate, right? That's the only way you're going to be successful. Of course, we don't say that. We just say, you know, deliver on these results, deliver on these metrics, but they have to, they don't trust themselves ultimately, right? They don't trust themselves. And that's the problem. So they fall back on what's worked in the past. That no longer works. And now they're like, screwed, right? They don't know what to do. But what a waste. I mean, on average, managers have seven to eight people reporting to them. Okay. So if we do the maths, 2.4 times seven is 14, about 16 million. Um, So 16 to 18 million adults, which is half the UK population. Crazy. Yeah, well, it's actually nearly, it's about a third of the population. So it's probably half the working population reporting to an accidental manager. Yeah. I mean, if that doesn't give CFOs and investors apoplexy, I don't know what will. Yeah. I, it, I, it's, a, it's a crisis. It's a leadership crisis. So, and it's so solvable, Marcus. That's the other oh, thing. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's do this. Ma- um, sprinkle some magic dust. Okay. okay. So you're now my fairy godmother. Um, so it's yeah. so definitely a better image than me being it. Um, <laughs> so you're the fairy godmother, and you can create the ideal conditions uh, mm. for managers to th- uh, create the conditions for their people to thrive. What is it that has to change for managers first? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, we have to develop them as leaders. And I think the answer to that is the way to name this is adaptive intelligence. So what we have to teach them is that there is no right answer, like no answer, no idea, no course of action comes out of anybody's head inherently right or or like good or it's going to work, okay? You just try it, you take action and you try it and you get feedback on whether it's true or not. So first of all, letting go of the fact that the first idea you try might not work. Right, letting like so that's and I think you said this earlier as well. Like, so that's so key and that's so hard for people to do. I have struggled with this myself, right? Letting go of that like ego attachment to like my idea that I've worked so hard on, I've optimized the plan, right? No, like get good at planning, not at not at one plan, right? Get good at planning. So so that's the first thing. And I think there's there's a lot people can do to develop that skill. And it really just comes down to thinking and story, like getting good at thinking and story. And, and we have a bunch of tools and, and methods that we use for that. So you can you can improve. And by the way, the, that part of the brain, all, I mean, our whole brain does, but the, it's like a muscle. So the more you do this, the stronger it gets. And then your ability to come up with new plans on the fly improves. And that's that's a win stage, right? Like that's- And that's decision-making as well. So that's again- decision-making. Yeah, yeah, so you, you need to practice decision-making so that you can calibrate what your gut, your body is telling you, exactly. uh, and then evaluate how effective those decisions were, because then you can start to learn to really trust your gut based on subtle nuance in terms of your, of your feelings and physiology. Now, when you have to make decisions where there is very limited information, and you have to make decisions quickly, and they may well be life or death. Maybe not in business, but um, you know, if history is repeating, we're just about to go into 10 years of somewhat unpleasant turmoil. We're going to have to adapt. 
even if war doesn't break out, chances are the next 10 years is going to be exceptionally volatile, exceptionally uncertain, exceptionally anxious. And the challenge here is that managers, and we saw this in the pandemic, the great managers, they were pastoral. They were looking after their people. They looked after the human being. They were aware of their people's situation. And the net result of that was they kept their people they got them productive. They managed to hang on to people even when they had to make massive cuts uh, yeah. in spending and so on. The bad managers got very brittle and they've been trying to get people back in the office because it's, they want to control them. Management is not about yeah. control and nor is leadership. Because yeah. it's all an illusion. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And, and to me, there's the two sides of that, that coin. Uh, that There's... The I, as a leader, I must be innovative. I must be able to invent and create and and, and lose, let go of attachment to any one idea. You know, the fear of fa- uh, the the normalization of failure and mistakes, like all of that, plays into that, right? And you want to, so you want to first demonstrate that as a leader, so that your your team can model that behavior. But then the other side is what you're saying, which is empathy, right? Which is like being there for your team, understanding what makes each of them tick, understanding where they are where like why they are who they are you know like kind of like and, and we do exercises on this as well you can it's actually so simple just get people to talk about themselves right like together right that's so simple and it's so powerful because once that happens so i've seen this on my team we've created a sense of belonging in our team simply through allowing people to be themselves at work and tell their story and others doing the same for them finding common connection, mutual interests, et cetera, outside of work, right? And, and, and within, but mainly outside. And then having kind of a shared vision or, or purpose. And obviously I set that, right? And I, yeah, I feel like you, you, you knew that one was coming. And this is, I think, another thing I, I talk about with clients a lot. Like you, vision is not a thing that goes up on a, you know, like you get a bunch of marketing consultants and you create a vision statement and it goes, it, it is a personal thing that comes from, in my case, you know, as the founder of the company, but it's also it's something that is shared. It's not it's so that Curious Lion's vision is not my vision only. It's everyone's vision, and everyone contributes to that by sharing their own personal visions. I, I do have a question about one area of conformity, which is values. What are the shared values that you recruit for and you keep people for? I mean, what the way I did it was to be very clear on what my values are. I came up with four. I added them to so we so at the beginning when we started, we had four values. Um, but we've added a fifth that didn't come from me. And and that was quite an interesting process. Like I, I actually did have a lot of resistance to adding them. I was like, no, these are I feel complete, you know, these are four, right? I don't need any more. And but the fifth one came from the team as a collective the fifth thing. One and, being open to other people's ideas. <laughs> so I found it and the yeah, the one the one that the team added. Actually, it's interesting now, like looking back at this. I haven't looked at it in a while. But the, I had we are curious, inclusive, our people are our most valuable asset. That's what we train clients on. Um, we're playful, we're productive. That was it, right? That was my thing. Curious, inclusive, playful, productive, and people are our most valuable asset. And then the team added that our passion shines through. And it was very interesting. Like I that resonates for me, but it was something that they felt very strongly about that their passion for what they did is kind of what united them, what defined like who they are 
as a group. That was that's shared that belonging. So important, Andrew. I mean, if you have shared purpose, I mean, salespeople with a purpose outsell people without one. And yeah. groups of people with a purpose accomplish amazing things. It's an awful, awful example. But you look at the attacks in Israel and how they coordinated. It was like a, the Tet Offensive. It was dedicated, coordinated. They managed to keep it under the radar from the Israeli security, which is really yeah. pretty impressive. And it all happened at once. That is commitment to an objective. Now, 100%. it's an awful example, but you're going to see a lot more of this type of behavior in organizations and in communities as crisis comes closer, as people feel more desperate and they feel more entitled, they feel more aggrieved. Yeah. And we're going to have to sell and manage in that environment. What would you suggest managers do to adapt to the, what's coming down the pipe? Yeah, I think I think in times of panic, which is what we're talking about here, right? Times of uncertainty, times of chaos, there there is no rule book, there's no playbook that you can rely on. So first and foremost, it's it's kind of it's sort of I think this is gonna sound, I don't know, this may sound woo to some people, but for me, a lot of this comes down to that leader because I've had to do this, right? Is kind of looking within and figuring out first and foremost, being okay and 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 confidence in yourself, like having self-efficacy. And um, someone actually, I was flipping, someone told me this this morning, a really great question, a frame for this is to ask yourself, can I talk to myself as someone who is capable and worthy? Like be kind, be kind, be kind to yourself. And I'm, I'm, I am really not often like that. And, and I, I'm working to get better at that. But, but I think it starts there. I think it starts there, right? And if you can do that to yourself, you can then start to do that to the people around you. And you do that in the knowledge that, hey, all of us here, because this is what I've said to my team. I literally had this like coming together moment last week, is that I don't know what the answers are. No one does. Like that I've come to accept, right? I've totally come to accept. No one knows what the answers are. I just know that they are out there. And I know that we can find them. And I have a pretty good idea of how I'm going to go about finding them. I didn't even ask them, like, are you with me or not, right? I just said, like, I, you need to know what, what I'm getting into here or what you're getting into here, right? Is that I don't know what the answers are. You need to know that because some of you may have a whole lot of other stuff going on in your life and you don't want to deal with this in your work. And that's totally fine. I will help you find somewhere else to go. But I need to have fighters next to me, right? I need to have people who will do whatever it takes and be able to learn and adapt to the environment without me telling them what to do. That's basically what you're looking for in the team. My experience in doing that is once I did that, um, pretty much everyone to a person rallied. It's such a national thing. I think anybody has been exactly. Leaders need to be vulnerable, and vulnerability is an act of courage. Yeah, confessing that you don't have the answers, admitting when you're wrong, having the intellectual humility to invite other people's opinion, and not punish people for disagreeing with you. In fact, mm. actively encouraging it. That's the mark of a, a strong leader, and yeah. anyone can lead. Now, yeah. the challenge there is we have to get our ego out of the way and our attachment out of the way. And mm. those, those are the real problems here. You talked about the methodology earlier on. I was working with uh, a client, and they brought in their seventh or sixth or seventh methodology in six years. 
It was mm. never about the methodology, for God's sake. I mean, that must have become obvious after the fourth or fifth. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. I mean, how stupid do you have to be? But they throw thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars behind the pursuit of another illusion of control. So yeah. let's wrap up on that. What advice would you give to people around becoming aware of their attachment to the illusion of control? And why it's so mm. damaging and how can they let go of it, replace it with something more productive? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, all right. So I think a starting point for this is it's kind of like a pro forma exercise, but but to try and do this honestly with yourself is to make a list of kind of all the things that you that you manage, right? Oh, sorry, that you can measure, right? Which are probably also the ones you manage. And then make another list of all the things that you think that matter right to to be able to be successful and then just look at those two things right and see like where which is which is the which is the strongest lever right which is which is the one that's going to move mountains i'm willing to bet most people will see a lot more things on the in the in the second column that are those kind of things and so then that presents the question well like how do i do this right because these things are all kind of it's messy it's amorphous it's 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 fraught with uncertainty and so then I think the advice is what, what we just talked about now is, is go within first and look at yourself and say, you know, am I, am I someone who I, can I talk to myself as someone who's capable and worthy because you do know how to do this. You, you're born creative because it, your ability to be creative and think a story is the answer to this. It's got, well, it's going to help you find the answers to this. And, and so you've got to find that belief in yourself again. And and I think once you start to do that, and once you start to open up to your team, like you talked about, it encourages others to do this as well. Because ultimately, that's what we need, right, Marcus? Like we need a team of people who are willing or are able to think for themselves and find the answers out there. Well, I think that humanity's greatest superpower is our ability to cooperate and communicate, and then look at a problem through diverse sets of eyes and experiences. And then together, co-develop a solution. And then we choreograph who does what when in order mm -hmm. to ensure that the right people are doing the right work. And then everybody's boats get raised. And mm -hmm. that's a true win-win. And I think uh, going forward, managers need to be at the heart of creating that, those conditions. Because if you sell technology in this market, the technology stack has become so complex and so complicated that there are so many vendors. If you're selling into enterprise or mid-market, they could be upwards of 200 to 500, 700 vendors. No individual vendor, unless they are massive, will have access to any of the decision makers. You're going to have to go through partners. You're going to have to go through ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And it starts with managers learning to cooperate with each other internally and stop playing the bloody idiotic game of politics. So well said, so well said. And those skills are transferable, like you've alluded to there, right? And that, that's going to help you internally. It's also going to help you build those relationships within the prospects and customers. Yeah. Andrew, this has been genuinely fascinating. Love to have you back. I suspect yeah. we've got uh, so much more to discuss. How can people get hold of you? Yeah, I, I just want to say I, would, I really, really enjoyed this as well. I'd be happy to come back anytime. LinkedIn is, is, the, is the place. Um, at a real Andrew Barry. So you can you can find me there. I'm sure the link will be in the show notes. Would you mind plugging the uh, email course? Yeah, awesome. Um, this is goes into kind of the stuff that we talked about. So 
the points around like present bias, illusional control, all of that is covered in there, plus six tools for, for narrative thinking. And so you can find that at, we're flipping the script on leadership. So you can find it at curiouslionlearning.com forward slash flip. And then curiouslionlearning.com forward slash flip. Flip, F-L-I-P. Yeah. Cool. Um, right, so we're getting yeah. onto that straight away. Awesome. Yeah, and and then reply to the emails if if you do that. Uh, I, I'm I'm so as you can tell from uh, you know our conversation, Marcus. I'm pass I'm passionate about this. I'm fascinated by it equally too. I'm learning as I'm going in, in a big way. So I'm always open to conversations. Excellent, Andrew Barry. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So this is Marcus Kapke signing off once again from the Inquisitor Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, subscribe, share. Send it to somebody who really needs to hear this, probably your management or leadership. Oops. In the meantime, if you're somebody who has been successful in the past, you're selling complex solutions, high-ticket solutions that people's livelihoods depend on if they get it right or wrong, and you're finding it's much, much tougher, then please get in touch. It's not hard to sell well in this economy. It does take a little bit of time. It's a bit uncomfortable because you're going to have to do something different, but it works. I have clients who are crushing their quotas. I mean, they're two to 500% of quota and they've got choice in their pipeline. So please, please get in touch. I'll give you 15 minutes. The next conversation that you have that is coming up that you're a bit nervous about, I'll give you 15 minutes and I'll give you one question that will unlock it. So drop me a line, marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.